0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: I'm here today on uh, September 1st with uh, Christopher Coyne. He is the uh, professor of economics uh, and the Baldy Harper, uh, F.A. Baldy Harper chair of political economy uh, at George Mason. And he's also the director of graduate studies for the PhD program uh, here at George Mason uh, University. And uh, Chris, as you know, the the context of this is for my uh, economic sociology class. And in the book that they're first reading in the economic sociology class, it's by a, a man named Richard Swedberg, which I think you might've even read this. And he basically defines economic sociology as uh economic activity that's embedded inside of legal political and social structures and that our job is to study how these structures impact economic performance but also to examine the internal logic of these structures as well and for this uh our conversation uh you know you're uh, the perfect person in many ways to discuss these issues because you've written a series of books using the tools of economics to assess uh, U.S.-led efforts to construct democracy and markets abroad and also attempt to deliver humanitarian uh, aid, and I wanted to ask you to describe how you got started in that area of research and what's the most important lessons that you've learned in your studies.
2: Sure. Well, thanks for having me to talk. It's great, and uh, it's really a pleasure to, to be here. And It's a, a great class um, that you're teaching, and so hopefully this is somewhat helpful. And so in terms of how I got into this stuff, um, you know really it it was um, you know serendipity in terms of topic, but um, you know I had the background of course, you know the students in your class may or may I know you were, you taught the undergraduate um, and you're the one that introduced me to both Austrian economics and and uh, public choice or Virginia political economy um, and and so for the year I had you as a undergraduate at Manhattan college my, my junior year, I was fortunate enough to have you for comparative economic systems, and so there it was all you know, Mises, high calculation type discussions, Lavoie and economic development and transition issues. And then in public economics, we used to actually use Joseph Stiglitz book as our textbook, but of course you also introduced us to public choice. So again, I, I didn't know any of this by this terminology at the time, but the ideas, and that's what got me into all this. And so you and I kept in touch after uh, uh, you left to, to move from Manhattan College to GMU. And then I graduated after another year and worked for, for two years. Um, And so when I decided to get a PhD, I knew I wanted to be at GMU. It's the only school I applied to. I wanted to work with you. And I knew that I wanted to pursue research in the areas of Austrian economics and Virginia political economy. And so in in the interim, I had been reading a lot of this stuff on my own. Again, I internalized much of it, but I had been trying to. And so I get to GMU um, and really our, our what, our second, I guess it was our second or third week of classes, uh, the 9-11 attacks happened. And of course, the, the, Main target is New York City. Um, World Trade Center is, of course, a place near and dear to, to your heart and to mine, um, having grown up in the area and lived in the area. Um, but then you have the Pentagon as well, not far from where we're located in Fairfax. And so that all happens. And then soon thereafter, uh, the United States government uh, invades Afghanistan and Iraq and undertakes what is the still ongoing, what's called the war on terror. Okay. And so that was the context for all this. That's all what's happening. And you know, I, I happened to be assigned to Tyler Cowan as his research assistant um, for my fellowship. They were called Buchanan Fellowships, then we didn't have the Hayek um, fellowships. And I remember just being in Tyler's office one day. in, it must have been September, October, and we were just chatting. and I was just saying, you know, no one seems to be talking about what to us as economists, and, and certainly those of us in the Virginia political economy tradition would focus on, things like, you know, incentives, but not just incentives you know, for some given problem that needs to be solved, but very context specific incentives. So incentives within the United States government then unpack all the different layers of that. And then incentives in, you know, the, facing the people in Afghanistan and Iraq and not just the citizens, but all the different groups in those societies and then the government and then regional actors and so on down the line. And then even more importantly, you have epistemic issues or knowledge issues, you know, and, and, and very few people were saying, asking the question, do people in the United States government, whoever those decision makers are, which again is a complex, multi-layered group of people, but do they have the knowledge to actually design a society in Afghanistan or in Iraq or so on? Which was the claim. The claim was we're gonna nation build, uh, really rebuild a society both in development terms but also liberal democratic institutions. In any case, long story short, that turned into my dissertation. Um, and so really it was, it was a straightforward application of those, top, those concepts to a, a complex topic. Um, and so really the topic was, as I said, it was serendipity that it happened, an unfortunate event with 9 /11. Um, and then you know my, my dissertation consisted of papers. But another point of serendipity was, my last year in graduate school, I was sitting outside your office in a cube. Um, there used to be cubes outside in our old, old building. And an editor from Stanford University Press actually came to see you. She was going around to meet with the faculty. And I forget what happened. I don't know if you got a call. You blew her off somehow. And you said, go talk to Chris. And I was sitting outside in the cube. I had no clue I didn't what I was her
1: off. I just told her to go talk to you. <laughs> well, I
2: don't know. In any case, I'm glad you did. Whatever you did, thank you. Yeah. It, because she came and talked to me. And, you know, I told her about my dissertation. Again, the idea of writing a book. You know, GMU is a very book friendly culture. So all my professors were writing books. And so that wasn't odd to me. But the idea of writing a book was a very grandiose and intimidating thing. Um, And so anyway, we talked and she said, well, you should write a book proposal. Of course, I had no idea what a book proposal was, but I did it um, what I thought it was. And I I actually ended up getting a book contract, almost leaving GMU was between leaving GMU and starting my first job um, writing it. With a book contract, which was is pretty amazing in hindsight and awesome. fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, I called you probably the fall semester of my um, of my right after I left, and I remember saying to you, you know, I'm very overwhelmed by this because it is overwhelming when you say like write hundreds of pages as a book. And yeah. I remember you saying to me, it's still a lesson I I remember to this day, and I think it's a, a wonderful way to to frame the any overwhelming project. And you said to me, look, you've written lots of papers, so why not think of a book? somewhere from six to seven to eight papers around a theme. And if you think about it that way, it, it kind of makes it into chunks that are much more digestible as compared to saying, write three or 400 yeah, pages. Book, yeah. And uh, you know, that's always how I've thought about it. In any case, that, that was the kind of the, the impetus behind the first book in terms of things I've learned. Well, I've, I've learned a lot in terms of, of how to do academics, you know, based, based on that experience. So there was that that really set me up for everything I've done since. And hopefully improved upon but intellectually i think the the main things i've kind of learned are the power of again what what you and i and many other people in our kind of world perhaps many people in your class kind of take for granted you know around gmu you know you know if you say economic calculation they'll say okay we heard that in you know Professor Wagner's class, we heard in Professor Becky's class, we heard in Professor Leeson's class, we heard it in in my class, if you took my class. It's like, all right, we got to understand that it's, first of all, a very nuanced argument. So it's not just like something we just say as a stopping argument. And second of all, to those outside of our sphere, if you will, that that argument is one that's not fully understood. And this, I think, is where there's an entry point for people interested in, in economics and sociology because as you pointed out, if we wanna study purposive human actors embedded in a variety of different contexts and structures, well, then we need to appreciate the uniqueness of the knowledge problem. And that knowledge problem applies at different levels. One is the way we typically think about it. Governments can't allocate, or central planners, I should say, absent property rights and prices can't allocate resources to their highest valued use. But there's another layer to that, which is the outsider who has, you can think about it, not so much physical distance, but knowledge distance, doesn't have the local context-specific knowledge that people possess about the different kind of relationships they have, the different types of norms and traditions, and things that allow them to engage in cooperative behavior with other people, to resolve collective action problems and so on. And so what you get is when, you try, when outsiders come in, and try to jam things on top of people whether it is kind of meta overarching institutions or development I'm going to plan how to create wealth what happens is there's a disconnect between those things oftentimes and then you have a choice you either kind of back off or you jam it in and 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 in order to jam it in you have to raise the cost of of defection which which is leads to very illiberal outcomes very very quickly. Mm
1: We'll come back to that in a second. I, I wanted to react to two things there. I, I think it's it's important to remember that economic development became part of the uh, Bush two administration's national security policy after 9-11. So the idea was, is that if you could make a country become wealthy, then the people would be less likely to engage in the kind of aggressive activity towards others. And so development became part, but it was an effort to orchestrate development again. Uh, So it's kind of interesting. It wasn't an effort to to have organic development happen through trade and entrepreneurship. It was about how do I, as a state, orchestrate development and then orchestrating it will then lead to entrepreneurship. So it's kind of interesting.
2: And it's even worse than that because or, or more complex because it was that But the other thing you get is the rise of what what people in the business call the three Ds, right? You get defense, development, and diplomacy. Diplomacy got marginalized. Development kind of got pushed down to the middle area, middle of the three. And and defense took the realm. And what's defense? By defense, they mean military. And and it's not defending against things. It's proactive military action to defend against future threats. So we're never going to let this happen again. One of the ways you do that is to create development. So then you really militarized the development enterprise. And so you had all those issues you were just saying, but it's really then at the point of a gun, which makes it even more problematic, but uh, uh, troublesome as well on a a variety of margins, economic, ethical, and others.
1: Yeah. There's one other thing associated with that that I'll mention, which is, And maybe you can say say a quick word about this but the effort to try to be interdisciplinary led to the idea of the human terrain project where they could actually invoke using anthropologists and whatnot to go there to interview the people about what they wanted in development like do you want a school do you want that but they because it was hostile territories they were guided by u.s military with guns you know to do a survey of someone in their house so <laughs> Do you really want a public school here for us? You know, like that. And so this this whole process of that democracy and development we're now going to emerge, but at the point of a gun is really something that was an amazing catastrophe in so many ways.
2: Yeah, you know, you know, Bill Easterly has this wonderful review of Paul Collier's book. It's not the bottom billion; it's the follow up one. It's like Democracy, Votes, and Guns, or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's called. I forget the, but I, I I always remember this last line. He takes call to task for data mining and he says you know th- this is a perfect example of, of if you just look at what he's doing where he's shifting radically between books on on major policy issues because you know you're just grabbing whatever throwing in the it's the kitchen sink approach in any case he's has this great line at the end of that review where he says economists shouldn't play with statistics let alone with guns and i <laughs> i love the line but i also think it's a very important line to keep in mind which is you know and this is really one of Hayek's warnings with the, the pretense of knowledge as well as his, his other writings is that you can't treat the world like a chessboard, right, to, to, to invoke Adam Smith. You can't, you, know, you can't measure stuff, aggregate up, find simple relationships, and this impose your vision upon the world by shifting levers. There's, there's human beings here. And it's not just that you lose their purposes and plans. I'm not trying to you know, you know, pull at heartstrings by saying there's real human beings involved. It's that you're giving one group of people guns and then you are attempting to use scientific expertise to use those guns to impose a vision upon other human beings in the name of liberalism by the way and so you know don Lavoie's book national economic planning at the end of it among, among others he takes to tasks conservatives and he says look one of the problems with conservatives is they use the rhetoric of liberalism but they rely on the force of government in the name of that. And those things are at odds, you're going to undermine the very things you want to do. And, and that's something I've always taken to heart. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, if you truly believe in, in a liberal society, which again, is the claim of the people intervening, you know, irrespective of what, I, of what I think, or what other analysts think, can you achieve liberal ends using illiberal means? That's an important question. That's something that I think economics and economic sociology can, can shed light on.
1: Yeah, before I go to my, my next question, I don't wanna derail the conversation because I think this is exactly on this point that I wanna drill down on. But when you were talking, you mentioned about your first semester in graduate school, it really reminded me of the, uh, the difficulties that your class that entered at 2001 uh, had to confront. Boom, 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 boom. Because one of them was not only 9-11, but then also we had, uh, you know, the uh, the other plane out in Long Island got shot down soon after. We also had the um, the 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 shooter, you know, in yep. the Washington D.C. area, uh, where you know, and, and remember that that uh, that shooter took out, uh, you know, a family in the Home Depot not too far away from the campus, actually, right down, you know. And so all that stuff was going on at that time. And, you know, you guys are in class and we're like, okay, midterm coming up. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. midterm and everything. And don't miss, I don't think we missed a single seminar, you know, no, during no. the time. I, it's, it's uh, when I think back on it, it's uh, bizarre, I think. We maybe, we maybe didn't go to school the rest of the week. Of 9-11, but then after that, we were back at school uh the following Monday, I think.
2: Yep, yep. Was, they canceled a couple days of classes and then it, it was back to normal. It was very quick. It was it was very jarring. I mean, ever you know, the whole country, of course, was jarring, but in the areas where it happened, it was jarring, um, extremely jarring. But yeah, it was a different world then.
1: Yeah, I was teaching when the attacks happened. You've heard this story five million times, and I'm sure I'm embellishing some but what happened was one of the students in the class had a cell phone and she got a call to say that there was, you know, one plane and then she got a call to say there's another plane. So I turned to Pete, who was my my TA, and I, and I said, could you go upstairs and find out what the hell's going on? And uh, I had given the class a quiz when they entered into the class. That was the standard practice at that time for me. And Pete comes back down. He's He's like, you know, white as a sheet, you know, and he turns to me and he says, the, the trade centers have been destroyed, the Pentagon has been destroyed, and there's an attack on Congress. That's actually what, you know, his report was. And he, he says this in front of this class, like 100 and something students or whatever. And so I look out on the class, I'm in shock. And I like, okay, so we're going to cut class short. Uh, so you can go and, and take care of your loved ones or whatever I said. I, and then they got up and they started listening. I said, don't forget to turn in your quizzes. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so I had to collect their quizzes on the way out. Anyway, I, I remember thinking about how bizarre that was. But yeah. All right. Uh, so 9-11 happens. These issues are to the forefront. Like a lot of good economists, your uh, focus is is drawn out the window to trying to explain the world that's there and you engage in these two books, uh, you know, After War, and then your second uh, book, which was Doing Bad by Doing Good, uh, both of which address this issue or whatever. And you now, it's, it's over a decade that you've been seriously studying these issues. And you have a book with Abby Hall called Tyranny Comes Home and you examine this boomerang effect. So it relates to what you were just talking about with regard to liberalism and militarism and whatnot. And so perhaps you can explain because that seems to be a mechanism by which you have an interaction effect that economic sociology is trying to get at. So if you could explain that and relate it both to cost benefit calculations of individuals, but also the cultural shift in the attitudes that permeate law enforcement establishments in domestic affairs that may be in fact even responsible for the situation we're in today.
2: Sure. So uh, you know, the, as you mentioned, the first two books are kind of focused on over there. So, so, so after wars, military occupation to, to export democracy or liberal institutions over there. Doing bad then is focused on, well, let's say we don't want to export institutions. We just want to create development or hu- provide humanitarian assistance over there. So there's that. that then the third book that you mentioned, Tyranny Comes Home, is focused on the, the domestic effects of, of, of these efforts. And and the impetus behind that again is is it's not that I never thought of these issues, but but really what got me thinking about it was Edward Snowden, and so the Snowden revelations happened in 2013, which again for anyone who's you know knows American history, Snowden is not new in what he it's new the specifics are new, but, you know you know you go back to the what the the 60s 70s with the CIA and you know, all the Pentagon papers, all this stuff. It's like, and you read the church committee report, uh, you know, it's the same kind of stuff, just fancier technology and more covert because it's hard, you know, the new technology allows the government to remain even more secret now. But in any case, I started just looking up like on Wikipedia, like the NSA. So I'm like, I don't know a lot about the NSA. Like I know it exists. And the NSA and its current iteration was established in 1952 under its current name. But I just started like clicking, you know, Wikipedia, you can keep going back. It says like, if you look at the history of something, it says used to be blah. And so I just started going back before the National uh, Security Agency, and I just kept going back. And I realized, just again, clicking back through Wikipedia, that that an organization that was involved in surveilling U.S. citizens, not not nearly of the magnitude of the NSA, but but very similar in its purpose, and even fewer constraints at the time, um, existed all the way back into the early 1900s. So I just started reading about that. uh, And that led me to tracing back the origins of this and realizing that the people involved in setting it up had actually been involved in the Philippine American war in the, in the uh, late 1800s into the early 1900s. And then had come back to, to uh, the United States uh, and tried to set up a similar apparatus using the knowledge that they had gained doing this abroad. Um, at the same time, Abby Abby's first paper that we wrote together was in the summer of her first year in graduate school was on the militarization of police. Um, where we kind of used the uh, political economy or, or constitutional political economy type approach to analyze how it was possible for police that, whose purpose is to protect, to sort of be part of kind of the protective state, to use Buchanan's language, can actually become the enemy of the people or some of the people. They can use just the, the constitutional yeah. paradox, right? Any government strong enough to protect people can abuse that power. And so how do we think through using the tools of constitutional political economy, how that shift might happen. In any case, then Abby and I started you know, talking about this, and, and it led to the book. And, and the idea behind the book, to, to kind of simplify it down, is that you can't maintain a proactive, aggressive empire, a, a foreign policy, and not have it affect domestic life. Now, the way it affects domestic life is going to vary greatly. And so that's what we need to explain. Of course, we have a general framework, but the specific kind of channels and and mechanisms through which returns home change uh, depends uh, on, on a variety of kind of specific factors. And so in terms of the cost benefit analysis facing individuals, you know, look, just think of basic economics. We talk all the time about people getting, gaining human capital. We talk about people being alert to profit opportunities. Typically, we talk about that in the context of markets, and I think that's correct. But we also can extend that logic, I think, to other areas. And when people gain human capital in controlling other people, whether that's surveilling them, whether that is, we call them specialists in, in, in social control. They basically become, gain a comparative advantage in controlling other people, whether that's through surveillance, direct force, whatever. When they return from abroad, or when they, when they leave go- the government from, from planning out and innovating, because these are innovators. They have to innovate just like anyone else. Someone innovated to come up with new and better ways to surveil people, torture people, murder people, so on. These don't go away. Some people return to civilian life. It's not like everyone all of a sudden, because we don't have like a bad man theory. It's not like yeah. bad people go abroad, do bad stuff, and then come home and do bad stuff. It's that like, what are you gonna do? Well, think about, you know, and you don't have to look far. Like look at Stanley McChrystal, right? He was, had a, 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 his whole career in the military, very accomplished. What does he do when he leaves the US government? He goes to Alexandria and sets up McChrystal Consulting. And who does he consult with? He consults with people in the military. That's what his comparative advantage is, that's what his network is in. So it's not necessarily kind of a malicious, I wanna you know, maim and, and murder people. But what type of human capital does someone like that bring? And how are they gonna influence policy? Well, if your mindset, if your skills if the way you think about things is, is controlling other human beings using this variety of tools, that's how you're gonna to tend to think about things. Yeah. That's how you're gonna to tend to think about both the kind of policies that you adopt, the kind of technologies, and I don't mean necessarily like computer technologies, I mean methods and technologies that you adopt, um, and, and then the way you implement those things. But then there's even more. One of the things we highlight in the book for kind of we call them foundational conditions for for things to return home is 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 certain conditions domestically and and one of those is fear on the part of the citizenry and of course when when people are fearful of some threat they oftentimes turn to government this is buchanan's afraid to be free for instance um among, among other people have pointed this out as well but also the the extent of the battlefield when the battlefield includes the the homeland domestic life then it's much more likely for the weapons of war to spread at the battlefield. And many people would say, yeah, we want weapons on the battlefield. Well, okay, what are the two main battlefields over the last several decades? War on terror that we were just talking about, but even before that, the war on drugs. These are two open-ended wars. They literally cover every corner of the earth. If you just think about 9-11, what is one of the things that, that kind of the mentality after 9-11, everyone's a suspect everyone's a potential terrorist because it's not like terrorists, you know, wear a uniform. They don't follow the Geneva Conventions. It's not, they're not over there. They could be anywhere. It could be you. It could be me. It could be any. same with drugs. Anyone could be, you know, uh, could be caught up in the, in the war on drugs. And of course there's, there's numerous stories of, of people being caught up in this. Um, in addition to people that like to use drugs,
1: um, they're caught up in it as well. Yes, but yes. in any case, I'm sorry, got no, I was just gonna say, see something, say something. Yeah, right? For those yeah. of us who were, you know, ever traveled back to New York and were on subways, that was like the big sign, right? See something, say something.
2: Yeah. Yep. And that's part of it. That's, that's part of the propaganda story too. We'll come to that later. But yeah, it's, a, it's a, so, so anyway, you get there was this, this influx of equipment. Again, you don't need, this isn't, I wanna make clear, this isn't a classical liberal or libertarian argument, it's pure economics because yeah. think about it. You have a war at home, the war on drugs. We have something called the economics of prohibition. You make something illegal, we know all the stuff. Pushes it underground, raises the price, attracts high time preference people. Those high time preference people can't rely on formal mechanisms. They can't go to the courts. They can't call the police. So what do they do? They get big guns, Mm -hmm. right? They get big guns to fight the other cartels and to combat the police. Well, the police now have like a Bobby stick or a six shooter, right? And they say, well, well, these guys have AK-47s over here. We need AK-47s too, right? And so one response would be to remove prohibition. That would get rid of many of those nefarious effects that I just mentioned. Another is to then ramp up arming the police, which is what the, the government started doing in the 80s. They started saying, look, and, and this is all part of the conservative movement, actually. And, and part of it, of course, is we, we want to reduce government waste. And so one way of doing that was they said, look, we have this surplus military equipment just sitting here. It's going to be wasted. We shouldn't waste taxpayer dollars. We shouldn't just let this equipment go to waste. We have the war on drugs. Let's transfer it to police departments. So anyway, what Abby and I argue in the broadest sense is that, you know, when you have a proactive foreign policy, it's going to have real effects on the social fabric of domestic life. And it's going to empower government. It is going to change the mentality of government. And it's also in many cases going to change the mentality of people with their relationship with government. And I'll just touch upon one thing and then we can move on since given the the context of economics and sociology. Again, in some sense, these ideas are not new to us. You know, Tocqueville in Democracy in America makes this wonderful point where he says, um, I'm paraphrasing, this isn't a direct quote, but he says, look, war is the greatest threat to democracy. And it's not the greatest threat because of what he calls hard despotism. So it's not like you're going to go to war and all of a sudden you're going to get an authoritarian despot take over tomorrow. That's kind of like the way people mock civil libertarians often. They say, you think that you know a terrible you know person's going to rise tomorrow. They'll make fun of Hayek with the road to surf, the, the kind of straw man version of the road to surf and the slippery slope. You think if there's a price control on milk, we're going to get, get a dictator tomorrow. That's not the argument. Again, it's a, it's a nuanced argument. The issue is what Tocqueville calls soft despotism. It's the equivalent of like a frog slowly burning in water, right? And not realizing the the temperatures. And and the way he puts it is all of these rules slowly emerge up. You don't even realize they're they're emerging. The relationship between the citizen and the state slowly changes. And before you know it, there is more despotism, more control, more political power, if you want to call it that, that trumps social power, social power being our ability as individuals to come together in groups. Again, you can see the connection with economic sociology to come up with solutions to the array of collective action problems that define daily life. And what does that do? Well, that leads to a whole host of issues. It makes us kind of lose that habit of solving problems on our own or, 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 you know, it's like not exercising. You, You lose it if you don't practice it. It also expands the scope of government power over our lives. That becomes normalized. So that yet, you know, you know, you and I still think it's odd that we have to take our shoes off when we go to the airport or, or, or put our little bag of three ounce, whatever. I know they make that up because they changed it with COVID. But our my kids don't think that's weird. To yeah, yeah, yeah. to them, that stuff is a normal way of normal. life. Yeah. Um, and so that's the Tocqueville point. And yeah. so really these are issues in constitutional political economy, but more broadly, like what is it? What is at the foundation of a free society? And what is at the foundation of maintaining that free society when it exists, which as Tocqueville points out, is quite rare in the history of mankind. And so from that standpoint, these issues are are foundational.
1: Yeah, I also think that your work highlights a very (coughs) basic and elementary principle again about the what is seen and what is unseen. And so much of this conversation that takes place, talks about these actions, but never considers the unseen consequences down the road. And uh, so I think you, you're highlighting a lot of that, what is unseen to people so that they could better calculate the, uh, the consequences and the benefits and costs associated. So going back, it's not a libertarian uh, position. It's an economic position about looking at these unintended consequences for the society. Um, so there is a literature in your field on the permanent war economy, as well as the military industrial complex. And I was wondering how you see yourself fit into that literature, because it's oftentimes a literature dominated by writers from a different perspective than what you bring to bear. So what is the what is it that you're learning from that literature? And what is it that you're bringing to that literature that you hope improves it and enriches it?
2: Yep, that's a great question. And so, when you say from a different perspective, it's Marxist usually. Yeah, Marxist. It's so. so and and I don't use that as a, as to, to deride anyone. That's that's what the perspective it comes from. the The idea being that a capitalist system is limited in its ability to exploit a group of laborers in a fixed geographic area to, to 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 profit from from the riches of the the land and and labor, and so. The argument is that once capitalists have, you know, if you think of kind of a, a, a typical kind of tragedy of the common situation where you overgraze a field, it's kind of a similar logic, not exactly, but very similar, where for a geographic area, the capitalists are, are, are going to exploit all the, the riches. And when that happens, they, they are gonna want more riches because they're greedy. So where, where are they and other capitalists gonna go? Well, they're gonna start looking abroad. And so from this perspective, The war, nature of war, and the war economy, the war economy being all of the stuff that goes into the production of war making, is going to naturally lead to imperialism abroad, because the the imperialism is driven by capitalism, by creating new markets, by exploiting workers abroad, and so on. Uh, uh, of course, this was Lenin's argument as well. But again, he didn't come up with it. He got it from, from other people that had, had made it prior to, to, to him. And, and some people still hold this position. So in terms of how really, I think the, the folks who make those arguments make some good arguments. One of the arguments they, they make that I think is good, or, or one that we need to wrestle with, those of us that are fans of markets, that are fans, that, you know, people, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, but people that are, are fans of the minimal state, the night watchman state. So if you say, well, people, a lot of people, even classic liberals say, we need the state we need for defense courts and police. Okay, let's grant that for the sake of Adam, discussion. Adam Smith, Adam Smith. Adam Smith, Buchanan's productive state, yeah. Milton Friedman, Hayek, Mises, all these folks, many others. The The argument is, where are you going to get the stuff to, to do that, to, 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 Uh, 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 to create and sustain the protective state. And one of the things I've tried to point out is that these thinkers going all the way back to Adam Smith kind of pull a fast one because they they say limited government, they 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 list a very limited number of functions. And it sounds like, oh yeah, just defense police courts. Well, start unpacking all the stuff involved in all those things. Like pick something. We just talked about the militarization of police. Try unpacking that and you'll realize quickly how complex this is. Now try to unpack all the mundane things and then the actual kind of more extreme things like the actual killing of people, uh, uh, abuses of power and so on. You realize that, that what is, falls under the purview of limited for, 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 from this perspective, again, defined by number of functions, is actually extremely unlimited. Yeah. On top of that, when you start thinking about what is required to produce all this stuff, you realize that it's it's a, it's a what Don LaVoy called non-comprehensive planning. It's actually the, the best example of that. It is government planners saying we're going to extract resources from taxpayers, direct those resources to producing stuff, defense, police, courts, and so on, and then we're going to do that in the name of the national interest, okay? Think about all the problems just with that. Now, if anyone said that for anything else, if, I, if we said, forget about defense, let's pick a much more localized and kind of ordinary example. If, if we said, uh, uh, you know, government is going to provide the optimal amount of, of education or postal service, uh, or, or, or the optimal level of DMV-ness, whatever that is, mm-hmm. we'd laugh, right? We'd say that's ridiculous. There's bureaucratic issues, there's knowledge problems, there's incentive issues, and we'd go through all our Normal stuff. But when it comes to these other things, if you lay forth the position I just made, oftentimes that's ridiculed. They'll say, well, that's ridiculous. Who's gonna, it's the, it's the who's gonna provide the roads version of defense? Who's gonna provide defense? And economists as a field and social scientists, political scientists, many political scientists are complicit in this because what they do is they'll say, defense is a public good, it needs to be provided by the state, let's move on. But then defense is treated like as this black box just falls from on high. But again, economics treats, tells us not to. And again, this is not a, a, a ideological argument. Think about Eleanor Ostrom. What was Eleanor Ostrom's, well, she had numerous points, but one of, what was one of her key points? That social scientists treat models as, she, she refers to as a straitjacket. And, and, so, and she's talking about the tragedy of the commons, of course, and, and, and her view is that, look, the tragedy of the commons model says people can't solve the problem. Uh, social scientists say they can't solve the problem, end of the day. But then uh, Ostrom looks out the window, sees people solving and say, well, wait, either people are crazy, or the social scientists are crazy, or they're missing something. That's the more charitable way to put it. And so what I've tried to push people on it is applying the same logic to defense. So again, what I take from, from the, the, the Marxist kind of critique is that it is true that capitalists, private entities can utilize the political apparatus to engage in imperialism abroad for their own purposes, just like an interest group domestically can utilize the political apparatus for their own gain. So it's just a simple extension of that. But what does that mean? To my way of thinking, that is not an inherent critique of capitalism, but rather an inherent critique of the political apparatus, because it is the political apparatus, which acting in the name of the public interest, the national interest, which enables those people to, to do that to engage in unproductive entrepreneurship. So then the question becomes, can you empower the state and constrain the state? Yeah. I personally don't think you can. Lots of other people think you can and it's necessary. And then that leads into these all these other discussions about, you know, um, about empire and liberal empire and, 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 and all that. Um, but in terms of the, the economy, you know, I, I'm also a big fan, as you know, of this. He's an engineer, actually, named Seymour Melman. He taught at Columbia. He wasn't an economist. And again, he was coming from a a more left-leaning perspective on these issues. But one of the things I really like about his work is he talks about how military spending has distortionary effects on economic activity. And I really like that point. And and in some of the stuff I've tried to write with Tom Duncan, a former student here, we've tried to pick up on this from an Austrian perspective. So what happens to the market process when you inject government intervention in the form of the military sector into that what happens for instance when google shifts this focus from satiating the wants of you and i as consumers to satiating the wants of people in the pentagon to create artificial intelligence something clearly happens we have a theory of interventionism we have a theory of productive and unproductive entrepreneurship and so how would that look and how how would you spell that out and there's a lot more to be done on that but that's kind of the overarching gist yeah. of it
1: We also have a simple theory of derived demand and imputation. So whoever the final consumer is, is going to determine the value of what higher order goods are going to be allocated in which way, including human capital allocations. Um, So it's, uh, it's uh, a, you're doing really, really important work there about the embedded nature of the economy within this polity and the demands that the polity puts on the economy. Um, So in that. So I have, I have two more questions that I wanna ask you, and, and one of them uh, may be a little goofy, uh, but it's basically as follows, which is that you've chosen for your career to really focus on questions of an urgent nature that are, by, by in many cases, pessimistic, meaning you're dealing with the deaths of thousands of people as a consequence of the policy errors that you've identified. Uh, the destruction of people's lives uh, because of the policies that have been pursued uh, in like say when tyranny comes home, and people have their liberty stripped from them, even though maybe they they shouldn't have deserved to have their strip from them, but because of the way that they uh, this goes on so it would not probably be um, you know wrong to think that. You're like a kind of a dour guy, but you're really not, <laughs> you're, right? And so you work on these kind of very urgent and, and pessimistic things, but yet what do you take away or what is your most optimistic lesson that you can take away from your various studies of these various depressing outcomes?
2: Yeah, so, so you raise a, an interesting point in, about the, the pessimism, and I can see that. And you know, it's interesting, people have commented, and I'm, I'm sure this is true, I can, you know, it's always hard to stand outside yourself and look in that I've gotten increasingly angry over time from after war and <laughs> doing bad to, to as I've matured, I guess, or maybe become more mature, depending who you ask. But yeah, I mean, look, I think a lot of these things can be pessimistic and, and make you angry. But I'm, I am an optimist at the end. And here's why. You know, what motivates me, again, is is something that you know, one of the, again, there's numerous insights with Buchanan. I, I, every time we read him for for Adam's, our Adam Smith fellowship or or for our reading groups, at, or we teach him, I always pick up new things, any of these kind of big systematic thinkers. But one of the things I always, I really appreciate from Buchanan is you can never avoid normative issues because you always have to have some normative theory of what the state, if we're talking about the state, ought to do and what, what its goals should be. You can't avoid that. We can pretend. We can be like, no, I I'm scientific but we talk about then how the state needs to fix market failures. Well, that's a, there's normative assumptions embedded at multiple levels there. And so let's be clear about that. And, and let's think about that. So we want a free society, a, 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 a society where people can be free, not dominated by, by others, um, where there are protections in place for minority groups. I don't mean minority based on, you know, Skin color, gender religion. I mean minority, whoever the the, out, the the group that wouldn't win a majority vote on whatever topic right. we're talking about, regardless of their personal characteristics, uh, and so on that's, that's my that's my normative goal, and I think people can achieve that under certain conditions. I also think which again is, is the straw man attack that is often made against the, the, myself in some cases, but others that question these things. It's not that I don't think that there are real threats in the world, that I don't think defense against those threats are real. My issue is that by empowering the state to do these things, you are creating threats. So there's different margins of threats. There are external threats in the world, so you give government power. But again, going back to the paradox of government, you've just created a new threat. Again, the, yeah. the, the magic trick people play is that, no, they're constrained, they won't hurt you. But why? Why do we assume that? That's something that needs to be demonstrated rather than assumed, at least to my way of thinking. Okay, so, you know, we have the, the, the what is the nature of the state? Well, Weber tells us it's, it's the, the monopoly on force in a geographic space. Again, that force can be used for good, and it can be used for, for terrible things. Uh, if, if you think I'm overstating, you know, go, go read R.J. Rummel's book. On, on government in the 20th century. Um, and governments, uh, according to his calculations, slaughtered uh, uh, numerous more people, their own people, what he calls democide, yeah. uh, as compared to what died during international wars, which again is a large number, but it's truly staggering. And so you'll quickly realize the destructive nature of the, or potential of the state. So then the question becomes what alternatives do we have? Well, there's numerous, but here's one. You know, there, there's how about people figure out alternative ways of providing security that don't require the state and you say well that's crazy it's a public good well again it doesn't have to be a public good you know a public good is a very specific meaning a samuelsonian public good is a very specific meaning in economics and if you look at most what what constitutes defense in practice very little of it actually satisfies those conditions very little of it and that's
1: essential so, public good so yeah. that tells you how difficult the, 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 the theory is, actually. Yep,
2: exactly. But then you bring in the Ostrom point, Eleanor Ostrom, about yeah. people being able to, to figure things out under certain circumstances. It's not a panacea. It's not a guarantee. But we also can't push it off the table. So, so here's the way to think about it. What, what is less scientific, saying, you know, you're silly because you're saying the state shouldn't provide defense or... Defense is a real issue, but maybe people can figure out ways to provide it because the nature of the security threat is context-specific, unique, and changes as conditions change. The nature of the threat, technologies, people's ingenuity and creativity, and they come up with new things and so on. So where does this all lead me in concrete terms to, to think about? And, and this is my, my, my reason for potential optimism. There's an entire literature, and this is highly relevant for today in the United States. Forget about, you know, International relations on on what what's called nonviolent action, and you know this literature has existed for a long time. But kind of the preeminent theorist in in our lifetime was a political scientist named Gene Sharp. And Gene Sharp, uh, I believe he got his PhD at Oxford. It actually, his his master's was in sociology, where he first started writing about nonviolent action. Uh, he went abroad, got his PhD, came back. Schelling invited him to Harvard, um, and, and that's where he he finished up his. Um, main book, which was published in uh, 1973, it's called The Politics of Nonviolent Action. It's three volumes. Schelling wrote the introduction actually. And Thomas Schelling, of course, in addition to being a Nobel Prize winner, is one of kind of the founders of conflict economics along with with Mm -hmm. Kenneth Bolving and and several others. Um, But in any case, Sharp asks or, or explores or analyzes the ability of people to come together and in a collective action situation, he hasn't used that language, but that's what he's analyzing. To push back or to protect themselves against both internal and external threats. And he talks about the theory, but also the applications. And so, so this is a fascinating set of stuff to look at because he has all these case studies of people who engaged in in, in, in many cases, what are considered very mundane activities. So it doesn't have to, you know, again, we think about defense like tanks rolling through the streets or nukes, but it could be something like, you know, he talked about occupiers coming to a country and the teacher's not going to teach the students. And then the students don't have teachers, they're at home, they annoy their parents, then their parents get angry, and then they start agitating. And then that, or, or, you know, you work in a factory, but you don't not show up for work, you just slow down, and then stuff doesn't get produced, and then people get, get angry. Uh, uh, there's other things too he talks about, pro- peaceful protests and so on. And what he shows is that many, again, not in all, in many instances, nonviolent action can be extremely effective in allowing people to protect themselves and their fellow nonviolent actors against both internal and external threats. This is not some naive pacifism. It's not like Sharpe's just saying, like, stand there and take it. It is a strategic set of actions because Sharp says two things, and I think they're fascinating. Number one, all governments, even the most oppressive authoritarian governments, ultimately derive their power from the people. That is, if enough people do not comport with the, the dictates of government, the government can't operate unless they literally slaughter everyone.
1: Right.
2: So all governments depend on citizens enough citizens acquiescing. Again, this is a point that Havel, of course, raised in his book, The Power of the, the Powerless, right? This is his green grocer with the sign in the window. And what oh. happens if the green grocer doesn't put his sign up? That's the power of the what appears to be powerless, actually have a lot of power. So that's one. The second is that there is no way for most citizens to compete with the state in terms of violence. If you take Weber's definition, again, that the state is a monopoly on violence, you and I can't compete with that. Uh, Ordinary people that come together can't compete with that. So we can either just lay down and take it, or we can figure out ways around this. And one of the ways is to remove our consent and to engage in nonviolent action. And then he goes through all these different mechanisms. So volume one of that three-volume book is laying out this theory. Volume two is the different methods of nonviolent action. I think he identifies like 198 different methods. And again, a lot of these things appear to be mundane to like, oh, like having a sit-in. Well, that can be a big thing in certain instances. Again, look back not too far in in US history during the civil rights movement and so on. You can see the role of those things. He also talks about uh, uh, what he calls political jujitsu. And that is using the violence of the regime against them. And so one of the things he points out, and again, this is the discipline and leadership that is required, in coordination. It's a collective action problem. So you, so you need, again, he doesn't use this term, but you need things that, that economists would call selective incentives. Tullock talks about this in the paradox of revolution, of course, and, and others have talked about this since. So in any case, what you, the, the, the regime is typically going to meet nonviolent action with repression. They're going to beat you, shoot you, and so on. If you can use that against them, you can actually undermine their legitimacy. One way of doing that is to make clear to both other citizens and people outside, especially with innovations in media and technology, the true nature of the regime. And so when you see an innocent person, I mean, think about again, Tiananmen Square with the tank the person, what's the the power of that? There's an ordinary individual with the little bag or whatever, and there's a a tank in front of them. The ordinary person versus the state, the, the Goliath, right? So there's pe- they're, they're beating you with their masks on and their armor, and everyone else sees that the, the, the curtain has been pulled back on the nature of the state. That's not a guarantee it's going to be toppled, but it is a way, Sharp points out, for people to leverage the, the pow- violence of the state against them in certain circumstances. In any case, I'm fascinated by this because I think it is a, a very powerful and effective way historically to, to provide security. It's overlooked because it's small scale. So again, there's this weird tendency among people to forget about methodological individualism and talk about the nation when it comes to security and defense, but why? If you look historically, it's small groups of people coming together. So you take insights from Sharp, you take insights from economic sociology, you take insights from the Ostroms on polycentricity, and and you take insights from the stuff that you've done with with Dragos Alijic and Vlad Tarko on public administration. and, And say, well, how do you internalize those externalities? We can rely on the state to do that, but we don't have to. People can come up with solutions. Now the, the, the pushback, and I know I'm going long here, but it's all right, and I'll, I'll stop after this, is that th- there, some externalities are so big that they can't be internalized, so we need the state. My response to that is to say, well, wait a second, okay, but then where does the state come from? If people are incapable of providing defense because the externality is large, which it might be, that's conceptually possible, the then biggest. how are you going to create a state apparatus that is even larger? Because it's not just going to do defense. It's going yeah. to do lots of other things. And it's not just going to do defense against one threat. It's going to defend us against all threats. Yeah. And so how can that be both designed and then checked? If citizens are incapable of coming together to provide security in the first place, how can they come together to check government? And then you just un- you've un- unleashed Leviathan. You, the game's over at that point because you've basically given up, con- you've empowered government, but you don't have the constraints. And so that's kind of the constitutional political economy dilemma we need to think about.
1: Yeah. I also think there's a tremendous research um, opportunity that you lay out there in following up on Sharps stuff. So take the three volumes and especially the second volume and look at the various different examples, update them to today, uh, look at, the experiences around. You can do the intersection between economics, politics, and society by just looking right at that kind of motion and power of nonviolence. I mean, I guess James Scott, in some sense, is another person that's thought about these issues, but it should be people like, uh, you know, some of our graduate students could get serious in history or in actual field work by studying these kind of movements uh, today and their success and in, and in, in whatnot in, in pulling off change. The, the one of
2: the main people on this now. She's a political scientist. She just moved to Harvard. She was at one of the schools in Denver. I think University of Denver. Erica Chenoweth is her name. And she she put together this data set of, of nonviolent um, movements. And she found that nonviolent movements were more successful than violent movements in, in, in their data set to achieve their ends. And, and their argument is that you can actually get more people to on board because it doesn't require people to engage in violence. And and really it's a comparative advantage argument. Like not many people have a you know, if you're like if me, if I, I wouldn't be very good at like running out in the street and fighting government soldiers. But if, it's, if they're saying to me, like, you don't have to teach or something like that, it's much easier for me to do. In any case, yeah. there is a fascinating set of research to be done on this, I think, and, and you're exactly right. And look, in today's world, if you just look out the window now, forget about security and defense, and you look at what's happening in, in the United States, where there's kind of this underlying debate about how do you get social change? And then, you know, what kind of, it, 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 do you rely on violence? Is violence, does violence work? Or are there other means of doing it? You can see how these questions are extremely relevant today.
1: Yeah, I think that you know the image that comes to my mind, which might not be actually accurate, but besides Havel, it would be Gandhi and yep. the idea of making sure that people understand the brutality of the British imperialists and colonialists by making them stare at that brutality in their face. And I think when we see in the United States you know, our local police engage in an activity where they view their citizens as enemy combatants, that that really sort of, you know, puts it on the forefront to us about what's going on. Whereas I think when you get violence meeting other violence, it gets confused. Not saying it's not always recommended, but if you look at like 1989, again, starting with Tiananmen Square, the violence that was thrust upon those protesters has you know stained that image of that idea as opposed to the free mobility of individuals to escape from the borders or go and break, tear down the the Berlin wall or whatever that 's a different kind of imagery of of that, and I think we need to study this more um, so i have I have one question which you've touched on already, and then I want to ask you a bonus question, but just very briefly about the defense brain. In your presidential address at the Southerns for the Society for Development of Austrian Economics, you refer to lobotomizing the defense brain. I think it's just fantastic. And you've talked already a little bit about this, but maybe as a, as a conceptual and analytical point, stressing why it's so important for the lobotomy to improve Our critical understanding in political economy and then of economics proper.
2: Yep. And so, uh, you know, you know, really, that idea comes from Buchanan. I mean, Buchanan's 1949 paper, "The Pure Theory of Public Finance," a a suggested approach is the subtopic uh, subtitle, and we read this paper all the time in our Adam Smith Fellowship. That's actually what inspired it. You know, uh, that one of the reasons I like that fellowship program is we interact with students outside GMU, and so you and I get to kind of see what other people, how they respond to these things, they're interdisciplinary. Yeah. So that was kind of one of our foundational papers. So like our third or fourth time doing this, I remember sitting there, I'm like, you know, Buchanan's point is a very, in some sense, very simple. But again, I, I'm, I'm biased towards understanding it. So I don't think it's simple for other people. I don't think they've internalized it. And, and, and to distill down a, a more nuanced point, he says, look, there's two ways we can approach public finance. We can, we can talk about a, a, what he calls a fiscal brain and says, it's like a supercomputer. And that, that computer has a social access to a social welfare function, they extract optimal amount of resources, spit them through, and then spit out optimal outputs and you, you maximize social welfare. An alternative view is to you know what he calls the individualistic view is to unpack political decision making, what we, sure. we would call public choice and constitutional political economy, and say instead of simply assuming that number one, they have the knowledge of the social welfare function, and number two, the incentives. So they have to know what the optimal amount of resources is to extract. Then you've got to put them through the political process. Marginal decisions need to be made. You need to take into account opportunity costs so that you get into Buchanan's cost and choice and the subjective nature of cost. Then you need to produce goods and services and decide who's going to get them. So you have the allocation problem. You start unpacking all that. You realize, number one, it's really complex. Number two, it overlaps with the, the, the Mises-Hayek-Lavoy discussion of comprehensive and non-comprehensive planning. As well as the insights of public choice. Okay, so as I was, you know, in that, in that, when I had that aha moment during the Smith sitting, it was like, well, it's, what's one area where economists are guilty of this? Defense. Again, it's defense is a public good; the state must provide it. That's the defense brain. The defense brain is the government. It, we pretend that people can't provide defense because it's a public good. So the theory says it will be severely undersupplied. So the state needs to do it. Well, what are the implicit presuppositions? What are the assumptions that are made? Government is going to tax people the right amount, go through the political process, produce defense the right amount and the quantity and quality, and then spit out protection in order to maximize the public interest. Again, you know you don't need to have a PhD or rocket science, uh, be a rocket scientist. Go look at at, at any of kind of the the inspector general reports in Afghanistan and Iraq, and ask yourself: Is the government using your resources wisely? Just go look at, at the war on drugs in Afghanistan right And just look at that one slice and say, is, "Is this government defending me? Are they providing me security And very quickly you realize, no, very little they do provide security, and very little they do is using resources wisely. So anyway, it was my effort to unpack that. The lobotomy, of course, is meant to kind of uh, end the delusions of the patient that's the idea behind it. and so my, my goal there was to end in that title was to end the delusions of economists that that they could just model the provision of state provision of defense as kind of this optimal very smooth process um, that 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 maximizes social welfare, which is is what they oftentimes model it as.
1: So when I I just gave the introduction to the new students in the program, and I was talking about uh, basically Hayek, Buchanan, and the Ostroms, and I used the the uh, metaphor of of turning a prism uh, and getting different shades of colors, and all of a yep. sudden the world is different. And my argument was is that. You know, if you look at like say Buchanan, he's a public finance economist. So he's just like everyone else. But what he did was he just twisted it slightly and then it showed all these other color ranges that previously the Samuelsonian public finance economist or Musgrave never would have gotten. Exactly. In this case, it forces us to think about as you put it out, the, the rational choices of the individuals that are in the political process and to view politics itself as an exchange process that is going on. It's not from on high, or as you, I love the way you just put it, which is that you plug it into a machine and the machine spits out the optimal solution. That's not how politics operates. So, I mean, and you've done a fantastic job of exploring this in your work and, and exploring the implications of it and everything like that. And so there's, you have written a, a lot of different papers. And so I hope people follow up on that. Uh, so one last question, which is the bonus round, <laughs> right? Uh, I won't ask you uh, underrated, overrated. We'll just. Uh, <laughs> I would like to know what your, uh, you know, what you think is gets you most excited about your current work that you're doing, and what questions in that work do you think need most answering to make sense of the world that we live in.
2: Sure, and so I'll be I'll be brief because I realize I was long some of the answers. You know. So, so Abby and I have another book coming out on uh, propaganda. It's called Manufacturing Militarism, we're, we're playing off Chomsky, of course, with Manufacturing Consent. Um, and in there, we're, we are looking at how the, we, we focus on the war on terror, so propaganda during the war on terror, U.S. government propaganda. And uh, re, you know, the, again, we draw on many of the insights from Buchanan and others. Um, and, and talk about you know, kind of the, the theoretical framework is well, what happens when you centralize control of power, that's the national security state, you centralize control of information because you have massive classification, um, what, what many people refer to as over classification of information, so even you know, many members of Congress and congressional oversight, certainly citizens can't get access to this in the name of national security. Of course, the incentive is to over classify in order to insulate yourself from oversight. So what happens? Well, you know, you you, you have massive information asymmetries, and that allows government actors to manipulate that information in the pursuit of their own ends. Uh, That's just the incentives of politics. That creates problems, though, for a self-governing liberal democratic society and the ability of people to check government actors to ensure that they're actually doing things in the public interest and so on. So we have the theoretical framework, and we talk about a whole host of things. You know, you, you brought up earlier the see something... uh, Say something, and and the idea of creating a a world of eyes looking at everyone else—you know—I have to be suspect of you, you know. And and the U.S. government invested significant—you know—I don't know how much you read about this, but but, you know, they invested millions of dollars in these efforts to look at people in airports and like, are you blinking too much? Are you sweating? Or, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm sweating. I just ran through the airport because I was late. You know, is that make me a terrorist, or am I just a sweaty person because I just ran through the airport? You know, so you can see the the issues here. It's kind of like the mind reading back in the. Um, during the Cold War and the US government pretended they could read people's minds. That's the men with goats or whatever. Right, um, but yeah. in any case, the the which is true by the way. But uh, anyway, we have that. Uh, I have another book I just finished up, which uh, I, I still, you know, finding where it's going to be published called against empire that kind of brings together um, a lot of the stuff you and I have been talking about in my writings on this. And, and one of the things I've tried to push back on is that there there's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't agree with the things I've said to you and that I've written especially even people that are sympathetic on other margins so a lot of people would be sympathetic with things that I've said about markets for instance or entrepreneurship you know classical liberals broadly understood right but of course many of them are also very pro-empire and they believe it's a force for good you know the idea of liberal empire this is like Deepak Lal, Neil Ferguson and so on they have arguments it's not like they're just saying things and so anyway I'm trying to counter that And the other thing I'm really excited about is something you and i touched on earlier is this polycentric defense um topic um which which uh, uh, i'm currently working on um and we have an initial paper but i'm trying to expand it um, doing very much along the lines of what you were talking about with updating some of these case studies illustrating the relevance for today and i think that's important for offering people at a minimum an existence proof of the ability of people to engage in what what sharp called civilian-based defense yeah. the idea to co- that people can come together and provide solutions to real security challenges that they face. And so that's the other thing I'm really excited about because I think that's the biggest challenge, right? People are always gonna say, well, what would, what would we do in the absence of government doing this? And so I think that's a very powerful thing to point out. You and mentioned, You mentioned
1: yeah. earlier, and let me just give you, uh, Lynn Ostrom, let me give you a, um, a- another motivating thing like you, you got from Buchanan and the defense brain. So there's a line in, in the Governing the Commons, She says that, uh, I think it's in the Governing Commons, but that uh, Olson's book should have been titled The Logic of Collective Inaction. Yep, that's right. Because his theory shows that the groups can't get together to achieve the action. And I think there could be a logic of, uh, you know, uh, basically following the SHARP model, because in the same way, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. Eleanor describes herself at times as a biologist, Who's going around and seeing these species that everyone else tells her are extinct, but then she sees them. They look like them, you know. They sound like them. They they behave like them, but they're supposed to be extinct, but they actually exist. And I similar kind of thing about you know self defense and or civ- civil civil uh, nonviolent defense mechanisms and their effectiveness. And I think that that might be a kind of a rallying point around it. The logic of uh you know again just like the defense brain that people claim that you can't have these kind of defense mechanisms unless you have a state but yet we see it all the time that you can and it, it they they make a bigger appeal for themselves the more we pay attention to the what is unseen in the argument for this the state because you know and and uh that goes back to your point about the you know People who are classical liberal, but also, you know, what what is called the strong minimal state, right? Yep. A classical liberal, but strong minimal state. Well, part of that is because they think that having the strong minimal state doesn't affect the minimalness <laughs> or, yep. or the freedom within that. So anyway, it's a... It's, uh, I, I think that that's great work that you're doing in all of that. And especially I'm looking forward to the propaganda stuff because I'm sure you'll look, you, you have a chapter must be looking at the impact of the military on sports,
2: sports, movies, Hollywood. Um, so transformers is in there among others. Um, and, um, Iraq, of course, both the, the, the initial invasion of Iraq and after, um, and several other case studies. So, um, you know, the propaganda doesn't look like it did in World War II, where you had posters on every corner, but uh, it's still all around us. In many cases, it's more kind of covert. Um, but, uh, you know, I also end up where we end the book. It's the last chapter based on, uh, again, playing off hobbles called The Power of the Propagandized, which is people have the power. And this is where kind of the green grocer comes in, right? His example that they can remove the propaganda poster from the window and pull back the curtain of the regime. Okay. Um, and so it's people power again it's all based on on people power which is Tocqueville and Ostrom all that kind of stuff yeah. Buchanan
1: all right well thank you very much Chris uh, This yeah. is outstanding and I really appreciate you taking the time to spend that with me and and explain your work for others and I hope that they uh you know pick up on that and and uh, uh are able to run with it so thank yeah. you
2: well thank you Pete appreciate it <music>